Section 12 of Psychological Warfare. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Psychological Warfare by Paul M. A. Leinbarger. Chapter 6C. Psychological Warfare in World War II, Part 3. The Lessons. The major job of psychological warfare passed to the theaters. In some theaters, this was kept by the commander directly under his own immediate supervision, and OWI was used simply as a propaganda service of supply. In others, OWI was an almost independent agent. In some places, OWI worked with OSS, as in the European theater, and others independently, as in the China-Burma-India theater. In one, it worked completely without OSS, SWPA, since General MacArthur did not let OSS into his theater at all. OSS got in the general area anyhow, with Navy permission. It turned up blissfully highly nautical and sapien. These theater establishments were the ones that set up local standard-wide programs, which the enemy could hear in volume. They provided the loudspeaker units which were taken right into combat. They serviced the ground and air combat echelons with leaflets as needed. They moved along behind the advances, opening up information booths and explaining to liberated natives why East did not get the four freedoms, the three meals a day, and the new pair of shoes he thought he had been promised by the American radio. These military establishments are better described under operations, since it was their functioning which defined, down to the limit of present-day experience, American military doctrine concerning the conduct of psychological warfare in theaters of war. In concluding the historical summary of psychological warfare, it is interesting to look at three major points which emerge plainly from the experience of World War II. Points which either were not discovered in World War I, or else failed to make an impact on the minds of the responsible officials and informed citizens. The first of these is simple. It became almost a litany with Colonel Oscar Solbert when he sought to indoctrinate civilian geniuses with military properties. Psychological warfare is a function of command. If command chooses to exercise it, it will succeed. If command neglects it, or if it is operated independently of military command, it will either interfere with the conduct of war proper, or it will be wasted. It took us two bitter years to learn this lesson. Political warfare cannot be waged without direct access to the White House and the Department of State. Field operations cannot be conducted unless they meet at some common staff point with field command. No one can succeed in improvising alleged policy and presenting that policy as United States policy and get away with it. Sooner or later, actual policy catches up with him. In the field, no civilian can write leaflets for air or ground distribution unless he has some idea of when, where, why, and how they will be used. The second lesson of World War II set forth by Colonel Solbert and Dr. Edwin Guthrie was simply this. Atrocity propaganda begets atrocity. 
Everyone knows that war is cruel, sad, shameful to the soul of man. Everyone knows that it hurts, degrades, injures the human body. Everyone knows that it is not pleasant to undergo, nor even to look at. If any particular war is worth fighting, it is worth fighting for some reason other than the crazily obvious one, the fact that it is already war. It is a poor statesman or general who cannot give his troops and people an inspiring statement of their own side in war. Atrocity propaganda reacts against war in general. Meanwhile, it goes the enemy into committing more atrocities. The anti-atrocity rule was not lifted in World War II, save for one or two notable exceptions, such as President Roosevelt's delayed announcement of the Japanese having executed the Doolittle Flyers, except for the specific purpose of preventing some atrocity that seemed about to occur in a known situation from actually occurring. Atrocity propaganda heats up the imagination of troops, makes them more liable to nervous or psychoneurotic strain. It increases the chances of one's own psych committing atrocities in revenge for the ones alleged or reported. Furthermore, atrocity propaganda scares the enemy out of surrendering and gives the enemy command an easier responsibility in persuading their troops to fight with last-ditch desperation. The third lesson was equally simple. America does not normally produce psychological warfare personnel in peacetime, and if such personnel are to be needed again, they will have to be trained especially and in advance. Qualifications for Psychological Warfare Effective psychological warfare requires the combination of four skills in a single individual. Number one, an effective working knowledge of U.S. government administration and policy, so that the purposes and plans of the government may be correctly interpreted. Number two, an effective knowledge of correct military and naval procedure and of staff operations together with enough understanding of the arts of warfare, whether naval or military, to adjust propaganda utterance to military situations and to practical propaganda operations in forms which will dovetail. Number three, professional knowledge of the media of information, or of at least one of them, book publishing, magazines, newspapers, radio advertising, and its various branches, or a closely related field, practical political canvassing, visual or adult education, etc. Number four, intimate professional level understanding of a given area, Italy, Japan, New Guinea, Kwantung, Algeria, based on first-hand acquaintance, knowledge of the language, traditions, history, practical politics, and customs. On top of these, there may be a possible fifth skill to make the individual perfect. Number five, professional scientific understanding of psychology, anthropology, sociology, history, political science, or a comparable field. The man who steps up and says that he meets all five of these qualifications is a liar, a genius, or both. There is no perfect psychological warrior. However, and the qualification is important, 
e-psychological warfare team represents a composite of these skills. Some members have two or three to start with, the others virtually none. But all of the personnel, except for men with peculiarly specialized jobs, ordinance experts, cryptographers, translators, calligraphers, end up with a professionalism that blends these together. They may not meet professional standards as officials, officers, journalists, Japanologists, psychoanalytics when they return from psychological warfare operations against the Japanese, but they have met men who are one or more of these and have picked up the rudiments each skill enough at least to suspect what they do not know. The advertising man or newspaper man skill three who goes into psychological warfare must learn something of the enemy neutral or friendly groups whom he addresses skill four, something of United States civil government procedure skill one, something of military or naval organization and operation skill two, and ideally something of psychology or sociology or economics, depending on the topic of his work skill five. The psychological soldier deals with enemy troops in their civilian capacity. He addresses them as men, he appeals to their non-military characteristics in most instances, and he does not follow sportsmanship as men did in other wars by helping the enemy command maintain discipline. Furthermore, the soldier works with writers, illustrators, translators, scriptwriters, announcers, and others whose skills are primarily civilian, and he takes his policy cues from the civilian authority at the top of the war effort. An infantry colonel does not have to worry about what the Secretary of State is saying if the colonel is on the field of battle, but an officer detailed to psychological warfare must remain attuned to civilian life, even if he has seen no one out of khaki for two months straight. Personnel was probably the biggest skill problem of the entire war. Should psychological warfare be needed again, it will take careful coding of personnel to obtain the necessary staff and operators. The continuation of psychological warfare techniques, in part at least, that both civilian and military agencies in time of peace will, it may be hoped, provide the U.S. with a cadre for the next time. Very little of the living experience of the Creel Committee was carried over into OWI. Walter Lippmann, who had worked with both Creel and Zeichenhorn, was not a participant. Carl Crow, the advertising man and writer from Shanghai, worked on China for the Creel Committee in World War I, and on China again for OWI in World War II. He was exceptional and took no major part in setting up indoctrination. One of the OWI executives in 1946, Shortly after his return to civilian life, read James Mock and Cedric Larson's account of the Creel Committee, words that won the war, Princeton, 1939. His interest was avid. When he finished, he said, Good Lord, those people made the same mistakes we made. He had forgotten that the Creel Committee record had been available all the way through. Effects of American Operations
The net effects of the work of civilian-operated propaganda are hard to appraise because the radio broadcasts and leaflets for civilians were designed to have a long-range effect on the enemy. Statistical computations come to nothing. It would appear likely that some parts of our psychological warfare actually lengthened the war and made it more difficult to win. The unconditional surrender formula, the publicity given to proposals for the pastoralization of Germany, the emphasis on Japanese savagery with its implied threat of counter-savagery were not overlooked by the enemy authorities. It is certain that other parts of our psychological warfare speeded up the end of the war, saved lives, increased the war effort which was enormous when measured in terms of the expenditure of manpower, material, and time involved. One operation alone probably repaid the entire cost of OWI throughout the war. The Japanese offered to surrender, but with conditions. We responded, rejecting the conditions. The Japanese government pondered its reply, but while it pondered, B-29s carried leaflets to all parts of Japan, giving the text of the Japanese official offer to surrender. This act alone would have made it almost impossibly difficult for the Japanese government to whip its people back into frenzy for suicidal prolongation of war. The Japanese texts were checked between Washington and Hawaii by radio photograph and crypto telephone. The plates were put into the presses at Sapien. The big planes took off, leaflets properly loaded and the right kind of leaflet bombs. It took Americans three and a half years to reach that point, but we reached it. Nowhere else in history can there be found an instance of so many people being given so decisive a message, all at the same time, at the very dead point between war and peace. The Japanese had done their best against us, but their best was not enough. We got in the last word and made sure it was the last. Soviet Experience Soviet psychological warfare used Communist Party facilities during World War II, turning them on and off as needed. But Soviet psychological war efforts were not characterized by blind reliance on past experience. They showed a very real inventiveness, and the political policies behind them were both far-sighted and far-reaching. The Soviet government was the one government in the world which could be even more totalitarian than Nazi Germany. Many Americans may consider this a moral disadvantage, but in psychological warfare it has very heavy compensating advantages. The Soviet people were propaganda cautious to an intense degree, but the authorities took no chances. Revolutionary communist themes were brilliantly intermingled with patriotic Russian items. Army officers were given extraordinary privileges. Everyone was given epaulets. The communist revolutionary song, the famous Internationale, was discarded in favor of a new Soviet hymn. History was rewritten. The czars were honored again. The church was asked to pray for victory. The Soviet officials were able to tailor their social system to fit the propaganda. They did so even to the name of the war. 
They call it the Great Patriotic War. Outsiders may murmur, what war is not? But the Russian people liked it, and the regime used traditionalism and nationalism to kinch communism in the Soviet Union. In their combat propaganda, the Russians were equally ruthless and realistic. They appealed to the memory of Frederick the Great of Prussia. They reminded the Germans of Bismarck's warning not to commit their forces in the East. They appealed to the German Junker caste against the unprofessional Nazi scum who were ruining the German army, and they used every propaganda trick that had ever been heard of. They turned prisoners into a real military asset by employing them in propaganda and talked a whole staff of Nazi generals into the Free Germany movement. Only in radio did the Russians retain some of their old revolutionary fire with its irritating qualities for non-communist peoples. This was explicable in terms of the audience. The Russians could keep their domestic propaganda half-secret by imposing a censorship ban on those parts of it, or those comments on it which they did not wish known to communists abroad. The censorship was a permanent institution, in war and out, and therefore did not impose special difficulty. They could keep their frontline propaganda quiet, since they did not allow their allies to send military observers up front, and the Nazis could be counted on not to tell the world about effective anti-Nazi propaganda. But their radio propaganda had to be audible to everyone, hence the radio propaganda was the least ingenious in using reactionary themes effectively. The Russians and Germans both used black radio, but since each policed the home audience rigorously against the other, it is possible that the efforts cancelled out. Japanese Development The Japanese invented little in psychological warfare. They made excellent and judicious use of news to the American audience. They actually got much more official Japanese news into the American press during the war years than they had succeeded in placing during peacetime when they had offices in American cities. They did so by maintaining the regular Domai news service in English language Morse wireless for the American press ready edited for the newspaper offices. They put bylines on the stories and it is said they sometimes even told the American newspapers, please hold till 9 a.m. Eastern wartime. Thank you, Domain. In dealing with Asiatic audiences, special Japanese Butai did a great deal of black propaganda along with subversive operations but they displayed little initiative as to the use of basic techniques. Their chief merits were industry, patience, and the delivery of a first-class news service. Chinese Uses The Chinese Communist forces broke all records for certain specialized aspects of combat propaganda. Japanese prisoners were given cordial welcome, better food than they had in the army the company of maidens, rich gifts, and political indoctrination about the freedom of Japan. These soldiers then went with the Chinese communists back into the front lines, 
and took Japanese sentries out of their strong points. The Yenin forces went to great pains with this propaganda and even elected a Japanese prisoner to the city council of Yenin. The author talked with the political director of the Chinese Communist Authority at Yenin and with some of the Japanese in Communist China. There was evidence of a real understanding of the problems of the Japanese common soldier and of real sympathy with him, which the Japanese enlisted men were quick to feel. The communists went so far as to throw gift packages into the Japanese lines. Not booby traps, just nice gifts with a polite request for a reply. They learned the names of Japanese field telephone operators and then spliced into the line and argued politics with them in a rough and jolly way. When they had enough prisoners, they kept the most promising converse or political training. They fed the ordinary prisoners well, entertained them royally, and sent them back to their own lines with the suggestion that the Chinese communists would appreciate it if their good Japanese brethren would in combat please shoot their rifles in the air, thus making sure of not hitting communists, while at the same time avoiding unnecessary trouble with the Japanese officers. Under Chiang, the chairman, the Chinese national government waged a dignified, humane kind of psychological warfare against Japan. Few people remember an odd chapter out of modern history, the Chinese bombardment of Nagasaki, although it is possible that ascetic historians of the future will make a substantial contrast between the Chinese who struck the first blow at that city and the Americans who struck the last. Shortly after the outbreak of the full Kwesi War between China and Japan in 1937, the Generalissimo ordered his bombers to attack Japan. American-built Chinese bombers appeared over Kyushu, the first invaders to show up since the shoguns repelled Kublai Khan 656 years earlier. But instead of dropping bombs, they dropped leaflets denouncing aggression and infantilely pointing out that while the Japanese were uncivilized enough to bomb their fellow Asiatics, the Chinese were too civilized to undertake reprisals in kind. The Generalissimo's troops also had frontalization and frontline propaganda, but not to the extent to which the Chinese communists did. The Generalissimo himself followed a very liberal, not in the leftist, but in the true sense, political line towards Japan. He uttered no threat of vengeance. He was the first leader of a great nation to say that the Japanese emperor question was to be settled by letting the Japanese themselves choose their own form of government after the war was all over. He had Japanese on his political staffs, democratic persons whom his officials encouraged, and regular Japanese broadcasts were kept up throughout the war on the Chungking radio. Figure 19. Propaganda against propaganda. As an occasional stunt, propaganda is directed against propaganda. Hitler did so in his book Main Camp. The leaflet shown in the original and in Fasimile 
was used by the Allies on the Germans in the West, a German leaflet addressed to their own troops, defensive propaganda was picked up, X'd out, copied and refuted. End of figure 19. Figure 20. Reuse of enemy propaganda. Leaflets sometimes develop an enemy pictorial or slogan theme and use it effectively against the original disseminators. Employing the colors and insignia of the U.S. Air Force, this Nazi leaflet for Frenchmen makes no attempt to minimize American bombing to the French. Instead, it uses the Allied heading, The Hour of Liberation Will Ring, then it adds the grim point, Make Your Will, Make Your Will. End of figure 20. End of section 12, read by Shauna in Baton Rouge, Louisiana.